0: Thank you, Rick. Thank you. Well, thanks, folks. It's wonderful to be with you here this morning. I've already seen four Met people this morning, and uh, we have just a wonderful relationship here with... That's five, I think, I've just seen, maybe. Um, We have a wonderful relationship here with Heritage. We feel we have a major stake in Heritage because we've sent two missionaries from the Met to Heritage Dr. Reed and Linda, Rick and Linda, are greatly loved at the Met and And uh, we feel just so full of joy and thanksgiving for what the Lord is doing through them here uh, in training up future workers for the harvest field here in Canada and further afield. So it's wonderful for me to be here and to bring greetings from the Met. If you've got a Bible, I'd be grateful if you could open it up or if you've got a device with some Scripture on it and find Psalm 16, which we're going to focus our attention on for these next few moments. I'm going to read from the ESV. Psalm 16, do follow with me, a miktam of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight." forevermore. Let's pray together as we come to the Word of God. Our Father, we thank you for the richness of your Word and for the heart of your servant David, which we see poured out in this psalm as he declares his trust and his confidence in you. And we pray that as we feed on these words together with the help of your Spirit, we would share his heart of confidence and joy in knowing you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's still January, and as we embark on the unknowns of another new year, if we are sensible and wise people, we will want to join with the psalmist here in Psalm 16 and cry out to the Lord as he cries out, Preserve me, O God. Keep me safe, O God. Some of us, I guess, will be pretty acutely aware of some challenges, and particular dangers perhaps, that lie before us in 2019. Concrete perils that we need the Lord to keep us from and to guide us through. Others of us, I guess, will have little idea of what 2019 may hold for us. We may have little idea of what dangers may be ahead of us. But we do know that the future could bring anything to anyone at any time. And as believers in the Lord Jesus, we know how completely we rely on him moment by moment by moment for his guidance and his grace and his protection. And so the psalmist's prayer in verse 1 is our prayer, or at least it should be our prayer as we head into 2019. It's interesting what the psalmist, who is David, according to the heading, it's interesting what David does in the second half of verse 1. Having cried out to the Lord for his help and his protection and so on, he gives the Lord then a reason why he should help him. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. He calls on the Lord to help him for, because he is a person who has taken refuge In the Lord. He is a member of the covenant community. He is one of the Lord's own people. And David knows from his own experience of the Lord that the Lord is committed to protecting such people. He knows that God is a God of faithfulness to his people, a God of mercy to those who call upon him. And what David goes on to do now for the rest of this psalm is to pour out his heart before the Lord. He speaks of his reliance upon him and his delight in him. And as David pours out his heart in this psalm, he shows us here today what it looks like to be a person who takes refuge in the Lord. He says to the Lord, you are my everything. You are my all in all. All my eggs are in this one basket. Protect me, O Lord, because my everything is is in you. Just look how he articulates that heart attitude. You'd notice how he lays it out. Verse 2 I say to the Lord, You are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. I may be set apart as king in Israel, I may be destined to rule, but none of it is anything apart from you. See, it's wise for us to say, Lord, help me. Lord, protect me. Lord, keep me safe. It's wise. It is prudent to do that. We should do that. But it's right also at the same time for us to be asking ourselves, are we the kind of person that the Lord helps? Am I living as one who finds refuge in the Lord? Can I really say with David, you are my Lord, and apart from you, I have no good thing"? In the words of David's declaration, we're given this wonderful window into the heart of the true believer, the person who finds his confidence, his delight, his all in all in the Lord himself. Here's a window into the heart of a man who takes refuge in God. You know, I think you can tell quite a lot about a person by their tastes, what they enjoy, what they prize. In some societies, I've observed, you can place a person's social background, their education, their upbringing, pretty precisely by some of those kind of softer choices. I've spent a big chunk of my life living in the UK, and it's quite a well-known fact that in England, the aristocracy have this most incomprehensible taste in socks. It's a very weird thing. Maybe you've encountered this. If you spend any time in England, you may know what I'm talking about. If you see someone on the tube, on the, on the subway in London, and they're wearing a very sensible and a well-cut suit and sensible dark shoes, but they're sitting down, and you see peeking through between their trouser leg and their sock, like fluorescent pink socks, and you do, you see this. It's the weirdest thing. You know something about that person almost for certain. Their blood runs blue within the aristocracy like that kind of thing. Now, what we take pleasure in, it can perhaps say something about us. And here in Psalm 16, we see what the true believer, the one who has found his refuge in God, we see what he appreciates, what he takes pleasure in what his heart delights in. And the portrait that's here, it actually has a great deal to teach us as we seek the Lord's help and as we seek the Lord's protection for the year that lies before us. The person who takes delight in the Lord, first of all, delights in the Lord's people. The one who takes refuge in God delights in the people of God, verse three. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all My delight. Now, I wonder what you make of that statement as you reflect upon it. See, it would sound natural enough to speak of the Lord Himself being all our delight. But for the Lord's people, those who have been made holy by Jesus and cleansed by His blood and who have a share in the heavenly inheritance, the saints in the land, for the saints of God to be our delight. Now, that is another thing altogether. If we have any experience of church life, any experience of Christian ministry, of Christian leadership, as I know many do here, then we know full well that the saints of God can bring us pain just as well as they can bring us joy. The holy ones of God can actually, from time to time, be just a little bit challenging to deal with. We invest in relationships in church because we know they're important. We bear with one another because, well, we're family in Christ. We bite our tongue sometimes because we know that it's, well, a requirement of our job maybe, quite apart from anything else. But to delight in the people of God. Well, that sounds like a little bit of a tall order, just sometimes. And no doubt it was for David as well. He knew the frustrations of sin and betrayal, even within the community of the people of God. But nonetheless, he insists that there is good reason to take delight in them. He insists down here in verse 3 that they are the excellent ones. There is something intrinsically wonderful, intrinsically glorious about the people of God. And to see why, it helps us to look on to the continuation of his thought there down in verse 4, where really David paints a contrast between the saints of God and others. Verse 4, The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names upon my lips." as David finds his delight in the people of God, he turns his mind's eye to the peoples of the nations around him. Those who worship not the Lord God of Israel, but the idols of the nations who run hurriedly and frenetically after these other gods. And he sees in them and in their pattern of life a way of misery. He sees that their sorrows, they are great, And they will only increase as time goes by. And as he looks out on the nations running after their other gods, pouring out those libations of blood, calling upon names that cannot help and cannot save, as he does that, David sees that the people of God are glorious. He sees that safety is to be found in their company. He delights in the saints whom the Lord has placed around him. It's a very striking value judgment that David makes there in verse 3 when he calls the people of God the excellent ones. I don't think that that was an obvious judgment to make either then or now. For much of Israel's history, you'll know this through your studies, the people of Israel, well, they looked downtrodden, they looked weak, they looked divided, and they looked almost certainly doomed on a national level. The Egyptians or the Assyrians or the Babylonians or whatever nation it was at any given time, they looked more glorious, quite frankly, in the days of Jesus' earthly ministry. Well, his people didn't look all that glorious, did they? a ragged bunch of fishermen and social outcasts. Then think of the apostles, shipwrecked, imprisoned, all the rest. And then think of the church of Jesus Christ today in our land. We're pretty ordinary, most of us. Not all that impressive in the eyes of the world. Weak and sinful, feeble and flawed, that's us. Surely glory is to be found in the leaders of society out there, beyond the church's walls, the wealthy, the clever, the influential, the powerful, the fashionable, the famous. Most of us, most of the people in our churches, we don't tick too many of those boxes. That's not us. But David's tastes, well, they have been attuned to the tastes of God himself. His worldview has been radically reformed by the Word of God, by the experience of the grace of God. And he sees now that the people of God are truly, thoroughly, genuinely glorious. And it's a mark of Christian maturity for us to see that today, to see the glory of a life that has been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, that is being changed day by day by the Spirit of Jesus so that each day that person looks just a little bit more like Jesus. The glory, perhaps, of a not very educated, not very clever person who, by the grace of God and through the gospel of Jesus Christ, has come to understand something that the world's philosophers, in their own right and by their own strength, will never understand. The glory of a people who may not be very wealthy— and who in any case give their money sacrificially away to the work of the gospel, but who have eternal riches in their possession that the wealthy of this world do not understand and in which they do not share. The glory of a gathering of people, even like this one, who perhaps shouldn't have all that much in common, who shouldn't perhaps get along all that well with one another, but who have discovered through the gospel that they are brothers and sisters in Christ. It's glorious. And friends, for us in our various ministries, as we participate in ministry in our own contexts, it is so good and it is so right and it is so healthy for us to remember that the people of God whom we serve, they are the excellent ones. They're glorious and they are beautiful because Jesus has made them so we need to look on them with the eyes of verse 3, if we're going to serve them with any joy, if we're going to live among them with any gratitude and even delight. It is a challenge sometimes in ministry. It's easy, I think, to grumble about the people of God, and sometimes that grumbling even by leaders can become very bitter and ugly. But despite all the sin and all the failings and all the flaws that we see within the church, David has it right about the people of God. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The one who takes refuge in God, he delights in the people of God. Next, the one who takes refuge in God delights in the provision of God. Verse 5, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. "'You hold my lot. "'The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. "'Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance.'" Here the psalmist looks at his needs, his physical need for food and drink and a home to live in. Perhaps those things, they've actually come to his mind a little bit as he's thought about the people of the nations running after their various idols frenetically all around him. Perhaps those needs come to mind for us as we think of friends and family and neighbors running after food and homes and security, striving for those things in this world. And the psalmist says to the Lord, "'Lord, you are my great treasure.'" You are my great belonging. In you is found the provision of all my needs. If you read any poll on people's top fears for 2019 for the new year, fears for the future, the fear of financial uncertainty, it always ranks quite high. Many people have embarked on 2019 with quite acute fears for their savings, for their investments, with plenty of clouds of uncertainty looming over the global horizon. But while our world looks anxiously to the financial future, well, the psalmist commends to us a different perspective, a different approach. He shows us that the Lord is everything to him. He sees the Lord has made his lot secure He sees that in the Lord, well, he has a delightful inheritance. And the reality is that you and I, we will never know true peace when it comes to finances and material provision for the future until we really have made the Lord our everything. Until we're truly delighting in our heart of hearts in the inheritance we have in him. See, our world, it will always tell us that we need more than we have. That's what we're always hearing. If uh, when you get into these things, you have an accountant or a financial advisor, they will tell you on every single visit to their office that you should be saving more for retirement. At least that's my experience. More for the kids' education, uh, putting more of a buffer in place. But you see, as believers in Jesus Christ, we do this crazy thing of giving away money to the Lord's work. Even as common sense tells us, even as the world tells us, that we should be stashing it away and keeping it. For many, even in this room, your giving to the work of the gospel would look reckless in the eyes of the world. You've got a future to plan for. Why give anything away? Surely your pension fund, it'll need that. Surely your kids' education when they come along, well, that could do with that top up financially. Actually, as I think of it, for many here, your very presence in this room has probably meant some pretty significant financial sacrifice in one way or another. You've embraced some cost or some sacrifice to be able to study. Perhaps you've given up some more lucrative opportunities in the world. For many heading into ministry, well, ministry will mean some financial sacrifice, perhaps. And you and I will never escape that niggling sense of needing to accumulate more and to protect ourselves materially. We will never escape that sense until we learn truly to delight in the Lord and in his provision for us. Verse 6, if you notice it, it evokes an image of land division in ancient Israel, where each tribe was given a portion of land, and that was then divided among families to be handed down from one generation to the next as an inheritance that came even from the Lord himself. That imagery was actually coming uh, to mind for me just recently, traveling back and forth along the 401 between Toronto and Ottawa and traveling next to the St. Lawrence River. You've maybe done that, that drive on the 401. If you look at some old maps from the 18th or the 19th century of that area, you will see that the area north of the St. Lawrence River for much of that stretch was broken up into little strips, and given out to settlers to farm and to try and to make something of. And often on those maps, what you would see is a a straight boundary line heading north from the river up for, um, you know, a kilometer or two, marking out a division of land that was given to a family to farm. And now that's something like the picture here in the psalm. And as the people of God, we know that our inheritance is ultimately not a piece of real estate, not a mark on a map, but it is a home in heaven. It is a place even in the new creation, a place that God has prepared for us in His kindness and in His grace. And as children of God, well, we know that we have a delightful inheritance that lies before us. We have a better home in heaven than any even here on earth enjoying. But friends, if we don't see and we don't believe that the Lord is our everything, that He's prepared this home for us even in eternity, if we don't take refuge in Him and His all-sufficient provision for us, well, we will live always in fear of the financial unknown. We'll constantly worry that our needs just won't be met. And if we aren't worrying, we'll at least find ourselves feeling just that little bit sore, sore that if we're in ministry, in our ministry, and our role, we're, we're maybe missing out on some things that others enjoy. And we'll pray that prayer of verse 1 with anxiety rather than with faith, with regret rather than with thanksgiving, if indeed we pray it at all. But the one who takes refuge in God, well, such a one delights in the Lord's provision. Next, the one who delights in the Lord, who takes refuge in the Lord. Well, such a one delights in the Lord's precepts, his teaching, his word. Verse 7, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. The David of Psalm 16 is the same David who wrote the famous words of Psalm 119 and verse 11. You'll know them well. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You see, David knew the value of knowing Scripture. He knew the value of memorizing Scripture. He hid God's word in his heart. And so as he lies on his bed at night... His heart instructs him even from the Word of God, the Word that he knows, the Word that is hidden in his heart. And as he remembers the Word of God as he lies on his bed at night, he finds that the Lord counsels him even at night. My wife's grandfather was a decorated officer in the British Army, and he fought during World War II. He led a commando troop on a, quite a famous operation in Italy. Now, he had grown up in a, in a Christian home, a believing home, and after the war, he was ordained and he served as a chaplain and then a pastor. At the end of his life, his memory failed, and he suffered from really quite severe dementia, as so many do in the home where he was being cared for at the end of his life. He could relive events from the war with vivid drama, really. It was quite a living thing for him. But he reached the point where he had little idea where he was or who anyone around him actually was. Gemma remembers visiting him near the end when his mind had really gone and when he was failing uh, physically. And she recounts her her dad, reading to his dad from Romans chapter 8. You'll know these famous words. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And as those triumphant words of very deep comfort were read, my wife saw her grandfather's lips moving in perfect tandem, word by word by word, recounting quite flawlessly the words of Scripture that were still there deep in his heart. Everything else was gone by this point, but somewhere right deep within, the Word of God was still there. He died later that day. They received word as they were actually traveling in the car away, and so it was actually on his deathbed in that final night of life on earth that those words he probably learned in childhood became his comfort and his counsel. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. If we would take refuge in the Lord, if we would know his protection in every season, every trial, every terror of life, we must be those who have his word deep in our heart. We must know it, that we might hear his instruction, that we might receive his counsel, that we might set him always before us. And friends, as you prepare to serve others in various ministries, as you're here studying with an ambition that you might do others good, may I remind you just of what you already know? The most precious thing that you can give to anyone whom you serve students, congregation, folks in a Sunday school class, the most valuable treasure you can ever give them is the Word of God. They might think that they want other things. They will sometimes ask for other things. They'll sometimes ask for the latest pop psychology and the most riveting evangelical-ish entertainment. But what they need... What they will thank you for, what they will bless you for, is the treasure of the Word of God. The day may well come to them, it may well come to us, when we have nothing left, no mental strength, no physical strength. That day comes to many, doesn't it? And we've seen it. But if we have the Word of God in our hearts, we are ready to receive the Lord's counsel, even at night, even when we lie alone. The one who takes refuge in God delights in the Lord's precepts. And finally and briefly, the one who takes refuge in the Lord delights in the Lord's protection. Verse 9, notice it with me. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to shale or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand our pleasures forevermore. I don't know if you ever find this in reading the Psalms, but I do. I find that very often in reading one of the Psalms, I reach a point where the declarations of the psalmist, David or Solomon or whoever, where we reach a point where what they're saying goes beyond what they could have fully understood and fully affirmed for themselves and of themselves. You see, when David says in verse 10 that the Lord won't allow him his holy set-apart servant to see decay, that looks like a misstep on the lips of David because, of course, David died and David was buried and David's body decayed. And that makes for a little challenge in reading the psalm. Whose lips do these words really belong upon? Where do they fit in? Now, of course, as we ask that question, we need to recognize together that we are not the first people to ask it. The apostles got there first, and they got the answer right. In his sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, having declared that Jesus has come and Jesus has died, Peter then turns to the topic of Jesus's resurrection. And you'll remember what he says. You don't even need to turn to it. Acts chapter 2 in verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, and then he quotes from Psalm 16, For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. And Peter goes on, after quoting Psalm 16 and saying it applies to Jesus, he goes on to say the obvious, verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of this we are all witnesses. See, as king in his own day, David said these words, but he spoke words that would only find their true, their ultimate fulfillment when the true king the Christ, the Messiah, should come and should die and should rise again. And when Jesus didn't stay dead, when his body wasn't allowed to decay but was raised to life again, well, David's hope for life beyond the grave and our hope for life beyond the grave, well, it was vindicated and it was confirmed. Final verses of the Psalm 16 proclaimed the hope and the confidence that God will carry the one who takes refuge in him. He will carry the believer through death and out the other side into the joy and the security of eternal life. And think about Jesus. Jesus is the one who trusted God perfectly, of whom Psalm 16 is totally and wholly and entirely true. He is the man, he is the king who found his only good in God the Father, who delighted in the people of God despite their sin, despite their opposition to him, who delighted in the Father's provision even though the road was often hard, who delighted in the Father's protection even as he faced the cross. And Jesus proved the Father faithful, and he proved him true. And as he died, he said to him, into your hand, I commit my spirit. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. And what happened? What was the result? Well, we know the outcome, don't we? It is the story of the gospel. The Father raised him from death. He raised him once again to life. And the confidence of the psalm, the promises of these wonderful verses, they extend to us here today through our Savior, through the Lord Jesus. He opened the way, and through him and through the gospel, the Lord has made known to you and he's made known to me the path of life. He offers us joy in his presence, eternal pleasures even at his right hand. Only the Lord knows what dangers and trials and difficulties may lie ahead of each one of us in 2019. And if we're wise, we're going to cry out with David, Preserve me, O God. But if we're going to cry out to him in that way, we must also be ready to say and able to say, For in you I take refuge. I find my all in you. My trust is in you. Apart from you, I have no good thing. I delight in your people. I delight in your provision. I delight in your precepts. And I delight in your protection in this life and in the next. May that be true of each one of us this year and in all the years that God gives us. Let's pray together as we finish. Our Father, we thank you for the heart of David poured out in this psalm. And we thank you for the fulfillment of this psalm in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you that through him and in him and because of him, we may take these words upon our lips and say them with confidence and know that you are the faithful God who will give us refuge because we're in Christ. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Oh, man.